0: Good morning. Oh, how was I? Great to be here with you guys, as always. Just to praise and worship our Savior Jesus Christ, uh, not just through you know the words that we sing, but also through the words that we study. You know, as we turn our attention to the Word of the Lord for us today. This morning, the hope and plan is to complete the rest of Luke chapter twenty-four, and in <laughs> so doing, complete our study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I looked it up, we started this study back on April 11th, 2021, and uh, at the time I told everyone that I had no idea how long it would take us to get through this book. Uh, The Gospel of Luke is, in fact, the longest book in the New Testament, Uh, though it only has 24 chapters, and both Matthew and Acts have 28 chapters in them. Luke actually contains more words and verses uh, in uh, them in comparison to the book of Matthew and Acts. And so uh, when we started this, I did forewarn people uh, that our study through the book of Acts, uh, which is the second largest book in the New Testament, took us over uh, a year and a half to get through. And so I kind of said, I'm not so sure how long this one will take. But, you know, here we are. Uh, It's been just over two years, uh, almost two years to the day. Uh, So, you know, not bad, uh, and I do applaud those of you who have actually stuck with us and have been here from the beginning. I know there's a few of you here, uh, and I I hope at least um, that it has been just an enriching and blessing uh, for you as much as it has been for me uh, as we've gone through it and just learned more and more about the Lord and, and hopefully grown in our relationship with Him as we dived into this book each and every week. Next, we are going to be turning our attention to the book of 1 Thessalonians as we continue our march through scriptures. Uh, some of you may be wondering why we aren't going to go into the book of John, because that's the next book, Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, but I've kind of divided the, the New Testament into sections so that we can continually kind of come back to a gospel, and I'll explain when we get into 1 Thessalonians why we're getting into 1 Thessalonians, but uh, for those of you who have been here for a long time, you, you kind of already know the plan and, and what we're doing, but... Um, I'll divulge that next, probably next week when we start First uh, Thessalonians, okay? But before we can get to any of that, we have to actually finish Luke's Gospel. So um, if you have your Bible with you this morning uh, and you haven't done so already, go ahead and make your way to Luke chapter 24. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 53. And I've entitled our study, Final Preparations, okay? Final Preparations, Okay, Uh, once you are there in Luke 24, I'd like to invite you to rise to your feet in honor of God and his holy word. I'm going to read our text from my Bible. Do your best to follow along in your own Bible. Uh, Luke wraps up his account of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ with the following in verse 36 of Luke chapter 24. Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened, and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? so they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Verse 50. And He led them out as far as Bethany, and He lifted up His hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while He blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for uh, your word and the opportunity that we have to open it up uh, and to read from it. Lord, to allow it to speak to us, to minister to us. Lord, we understand that your word is active, it's living. It is a spiritual Uh, And so, Lord, we ask for spiritual discernment, Lord. We ask that you would just speak to us and give us understanding of your word, Lord, that you would um, give us ears to hear and, and hearts to obey. We pray your blessings upon our time of study and our time through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. So here in chapter 24, we have looked at and we've noted the details surrounding Jesus' resurrection. Uh, Two weeks ago, uh, there out on the beach, we looked at the details regarding the morning of his resurrection and the women that went to anoint the body of Jesus. Uh, These ladies, they rose up early while it was still dark, and they made their way to the tomb in which Jesus was laid. But when they arrived, they found the tomb to be empty. Jesus was gone. And there before them appeared two angels that questioned the ladies, asking them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? And then they shared the glorious truth about Christ, that He was not there in the tomb because He had in fact risen from the dead. The ladies went and they told the other disciples, Luke tells us how Peter arose and went to the tomb to see for himself, and how he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed marveling to himself over what had happened. Then last week, as we met again, we looked at an amazing passage of Scripture that detailed the journey of two of Jesus' disciples along the road to Emmaus. As they made their way along the road, talking about the Lord and reasoning among themselves about all that had happened earlier that day and the resurrection and the previous days before that, Jesus Christ appeared to them in a hidden form, and He conversed with them. Jesus spoke to them about how all things that had happened were written about within the Scriptures. And then beginning in Moses and all the prophets, He expounded to them in the Scriptures the things that were concerning Himself, it was an amazing time of study. The hearts of the two disciples, they attested to how their hearts burned within, him, within themselves as Jesus opened the scriptures to them and he spoke to them about how all these things were pointing to him. And when they arrived to their destination, they, they constrained Jesus. They urged him to stay with them and to partake in a meal together. And it was at that meal, in the breaking of bread, that Jesus Christ revealed himself to them. And then in a moment he vanished. He was gone. Uh, they were blown away, filled with so much excitement that they immediately rose up, traveled right back up the road. They had just traveled down. They made their way to the disciples in Jerusalem, and they told them all about how Jesus instructed them and revealed himself to them in the breaking of the bread. Now, our text this morning picks up from that exact moment, okay, describing what happened while the two from Emmaus were still speaking, in fact. And in our text this morning, Jesus is going to meet with and meet with and interact with his disciples in preparation for his departure and what the Lord would have for them next. Jesus has walked with these disciples for the past three years and has instructed them about a great many of things pertaining to the kingdom of God and the work that he was going to do and the work that they were going to do for the kingdom as well. And though they had walked with the Lord for over three years— we know that they still didn't completely understand all the things that he had spoken and taught to them. And so he comes to them after the resurrection to impart to them his final instructions and to prepare them for what was to come next. You know, as you think about the resurrection of our Lord, it. To me, is incredible to think how our Lord did not come back to Jerusalem after His resurrection to provide a spectacular show or to seek revenge against His enemies. Right? We don't read of Him going to Pontius Pilate and, and questioning Him about, "Well, why did you sentence me to death if you knew I was innocent?" You know, "Where's your backbone, Pontius Pilate?" He he didn't do that. Right? He didn't go to the religious leaders like Annas and Caiaphas and say, "Hey, you guys said that I was committing blasphemy. Well, here I am, risen from the dead." I am who I said I am, right? He didn't do that either, right? No, He goes to His disciples, and He returned to them to instruct them just a little bit more and to prepare them for what was next. And as we go through our text this morning, we're going to note Jesus' actions and the impact it had upon the disciples, and hopefully we'll look to make application regarding how these truths revealed impact us and our walk with the Lord. And so let's begin with what we read in our opening verse verse 36. It says, "Now, as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, 'Peace to you." And so, while the two from Emmaus, they're still speaking, Jesus himself appeared before the disciples, pronouncing peace. Now Luke doesn't give us a lot of details regarding Jesus' appearance here before his disciples, but when we look at the other gospel accounts, We can get a fuller, a deeper understanding of all that was taking place that night. John's Gospel tells us that the disciples were meeting that evening behind closed doors, and that they were meeting behind closed doors in fear of the Jews. Uh, John's Gospel reads Then they, uh, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. So the description of John's gospel paints a picture of the disciples, in a sense, hiding out behind closed doors, or other translations use the word locked doors, okay? This begs the question, why would they be hiding out in fear of the Jews behind locked doors that evening, right? And the answer is actually seen in Matthew's account, if you're familiar with Matthew's account. Matthew tells us of how the chief priest and the Pharisees, they gathered together to Pilate and they requested that the tomb be made secure and that the tomb be guarded with soldiers to prevent anyone from coming along and taking the body and making up some hoax about him raising himself from the dead. And so... With Pilate's support, the tomb was made secure and sealed shut with a Roman seal, which was only legally allowed to be broke by Rome itself. And so it was a big deal. Okay, Rome's got their insignia on it that's been sealed. Okay, you cannot touch that, okay, Uh, unless you want problems with Rome. And Matthew's gospel tells us, how early in the morning there was a great earthquake, and how an angel descended from heaven and rolled back that stone, breaking this seal. And the guards saw the angel, and they shook with fear, and they became like dead men, according to Matthew 28 verse 4. Well, later that day, the guards who were shook with fear revived, and they went and they told the chief priests all the things that had happened. But the chief priest paid the soldiers a large sum of money to lie and to say that Jesus' disciples came at night and stole him away while they slept. And then they assured the soldiers that nothing would happen to them and that they would be secure. They would not face any sort of disciplinary action. As long as they kept to the story, they were told by the chief priest. Well, the soldiers, they go along with the plan. They took the money and they started to spread word that Jesus' disciples had come during the night and stole Jesus' body from the tomb. And so they're being framed. Okay? This tomb that had been sealed with a Roman seal had been broken. Okay? People are wondering what's going on and the guards are basically saying, claiming, well, it was the disciples. They came in the middle of the night. And so now they are, in a sense, wanted men. And and so understanding the details from John's and Matthew's gospel, it makes us understand a little bit better why the disciples were hiding behind locked doors in fear of the Jews. Because the religious leaders, the Jews, they were trying their best to cover all their tracks and make sure that this lie that they were perpetrating continued without opposition. But the disciples were the opposition. And so they wanted to keep them silent And make sure that this lie would continue to go forward. And so, while the disciples are gathered together in fear of the Jews, at the same time being overwhelmed by the various testimonies of others who had seen the Lord himself, the Lord appears right before them. Again, the fact that they were meeting behind closed, locked doors, and Jesus just spontaneously appeared... That would be startling, to say the least. And so we understand a a, a bit their fear. Um, Evidently, Jesus' glorified body was not bound by the same physical boundaries that his body was prior to his death. He could appear and disappear out of nowhere. And he even had the ability to take a different form, to hide his true form, which we saw and noted last week when he met with the two disciples along the road to Emmaus. We'll talk more about his body later. But when Jesus appeared to his disciples, he pronounced, peace to you. Okay, And while this was a typical Jewish greeting of the day, I can't help but believe that Jesus' declaration to his disciples meant so much more. This was a fulfillment of the promise that he had given to them earlier. In John's gospel, he told his disciples, peace I leave to you, or I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, but he, and then he says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John fourteen twenty seven. Jesus had promised he would leave the disciples uh, his peace, a peace that would allow them not to be afraid, not to be troubled, whatever came their way. The disciples were gathered together in fear. And so Jesus came and he reminds them of the kind of peace that he leaves with them. Paul describes this peace that comes from the Lord as a peace which surpasses all understanding, a peace that will guard your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. And I believe what Jesus was trying to remind his disciples of in this greeting from him was that peace of heart and peace of mind has nothing to do with our circumstances. Jesus knew their situation He knew that they were being framed. He knew all the details of what was happening. He knew what was going on, but he was able to pronounce peace to them because the kind of peace that he offers is not based upon our circumstances. You see, people today everywhere are are searching for and longing to find peace, peace of mind, peace of heart. And they look for it in all sorts of different directions, all sorts of different places. You know, people look for it through... uh, alcohol, through booze, through drugs, and artificial short-lived highs, or some sense of happiness or euphoria that they can get from it. They look for it through temporary thrills and passing pleasures that usually only end up in heartache and disappointment. They look for it through alternative medicine and self-improvement schemes and meditation and positive thinking, right? But peace is not found in any of those things, Peace can only come through an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Peace is not found in circumstances. It's not found in things. It's found in a person. It's found in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 states that he himself is our peace. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 states, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, through faith in Jesus, we can have peace with God, and we can have the peace of God. And this same peace that was made available to the disciples is also made available to us through the same means, through faith in Jesus Christ and His work upon the cross. We can have peace with God and the peace of God to guard our hearts and minds in any and every situation When we believe that Jesus loves us and cares for us and that he willingly died for us, we can also trust and believe that he will see us through any circumstance that comes our way. And so our peace, it will not come and go based upon what's happening in life. It will remain consistent and unchanged because our Lord is consistent and unchanging in his love and care for us. And so when he says peace to you, he's reminding them, look, you guys You don't have to worry. You don't have to be afraid. I give you peace. A peace that's not like what the world gives. Let's continue. See what else Jesus had for his disciples. Verse 37 through 43. It says, But they were terrified and frightened, and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see... For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. Jesus started off addressing his disciples and reminding them of the peace made available to them. But here in these verses, Jesus deals with the unbelief in their hearts and their fear. When the disciples saw Jesus, they were terrified, frightened, uh, troubled. They thought perhaps that Jesus was some sort of spirit, or your translation may read ghost, Uh, the idea being that Jesus is some sort of apparition uh, that was visible but not material. Jesus asked, "'Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts?' In Mark's gospel, it describes Jesus rebuking their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe the reports of those who had seen him risen from the dead. They were all gathered together behind closed doors, contemplating the reports they had heard, how the women at the tomb said his body was gone and and how these angels appeared before them and said that he was alive. Uh, Both Peter and John uh, went to the tomb and found it empty. The Lord appeared to Mary, to Peter, to the two uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus. They had all of these reports, but still the majority of them still did not believe. And Jesus directly connects their unbelief with fear. You see, fear and unbelief, they go hand in hand. When Jairus, the ruler of the local synagogue, came to Jesus seeking healing for his daughter, Jesus said to him, Do not be afraid. Only believe. Fear is contrary to belief and faith. Fear hinders us from believing. It ensnares us and it keeps us from trusting in the Lord. But the opposite of that is true as well. While fear will hinder faith, faith will conquer fear if we have faith in the Lord, if we trust that He is in control and that He works out all things according to our good and His glory, we need not fear what may come. Our faith conquers fear. Paul said to Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Those who love God and put their faith in Him will by their love for the Lord, cast out all fear. First John chapter 4 assures us that there is no fear in love. That perfect love casts out fear. And the fact that these disciples were fearful, it it led to their unbelief. It was connected. Their fear kept them from believing the reports they heard. Their fear of the unknown, uh, their fear of the Jews, their Fear of being abandoned and alone. Okay, all of these fears were keeping them from trusting and believing in the Lord and His resurrection. And so, as a way to overcome their unbelief and to assure them that He was real and that He was risen from the dead, Jesus offered two proofs to them. Okay, the first one, was Jesus offering to the disciples an opportunity to not only see, but to handle and touch his wounds that were still there from his time on the cross of Calvary. He wanted them to see and to know that he was real flesh and bones. You know, it is interesting to consider that Jesus' glorified body that was you know, able to appear and reappear, to take on different forms, yet it still bore the marks that he received from his time upon the cross of Calvary. His hands and his feet, where the nails were driven, they still showed his wounds. You know, it's been said that the only works of man that are now in heaven are the marks of Calvary on the body of our exalted Savior. And while Scripture doesn't tell us plainly, I I do wonder, you know, why the marks of Calvary still remain upon the glorified body of Christ. And I can't point to a chapter and verse and say, oh, this is why um, I can only... you know, suggest a few possibilities, okay? But one possibility, possibility was so that the disciples would see and believe that it truly was him, and that he truly had overcome the cross. The marks of Calvary became a way of identifying himself to the disciples and, and proving to them that it, it was him who had overcome death. Another possibility as to why they remain is to be a constant reminder of his love for us, if ever everyone was to doubt the love of the Lord, all they would need to do is to remember the hands and feet of our Lord and Savior who loved us so much that he willingly died upon the cross for us, and so it could be that they remained to be a constant reminder of his love and still yet another possibility is that they remain not only so that he can identify himself but also so that he can identify with us with us, yeah, because we go through difficulties in life, right? We will face challenges. We will go through tough times, painful times, times of great loss, and the marks upon his hands and feet remind us that he knows what it is like to suffer, to feel pain, to be wronged, and to be hurt by others, even by those who profess their love for him. Jesus knows what we experience and what we go through He's experienced it himself, and the marks on his glorified body prove that to you and to me. They remind us that he can identify with what we are going through as we face difficulties, as we go through uh, challenging times in life. He could show us his hands and feet, and he says, I know what it's like to suffer. I know what it's like to to feel pain and, and heartache. Well, When the disciples saw the marks of Calvary, they were overwhelmed even more, and they did not believe for joy. They marveled at what was going on. In a sense, it was too good to be true. That's really the meaning of the words here. It was so good that it was hard to believe that their Lord and Savior was risen from the dead, that he was indeed alive again in flesh and bones, standing right before them. And so Jesus then tried a second way to try and prove to them that he was real, uh, a resurrected from the dead In bodily form, Jesus asked them if they had any food to eat, and he thought maybe sitting down and enjoying a meal with his disciples would assure them that he was, in fact, risen and alive. After all, a spirit or a ghost, a phantom, uh, as the other gospels have it, they'd have no use for real food. You know, they gave Jesus a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he proceeded to eat in their presence. He ate and drank with his disciples like he had done countless times before, also that they would no longer fear, but believe that he was risen from the grave in bodily form. Let's continue in our text. We'll see what else Jesus had for his disciples as he prepared them for his departure. Read verses forty-four and forty-five with me. It says, Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things, excuse me, all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Now Though it may not seem so here in Luke's gospel, it is very likely that there is a time gap between the events that took place the evening of Jesus' resurrection and the events that we read of here in verses 44 and 45. As we read from 43 to 44, we can just kind of assume, oh, this is just the same conversation continuing on. But we do know that the scriptures attest that Jesus rose from the grave that he walked the earth for 40 days after the resurrection uh, before finally ascending to the Father. And many things happened during those 40 days. Uh, A week after appearing before the disciples that night of his resurrection, Jesus once again appeared before his disciples, and this time Thomas was there. You see, Thomas was not there that first night uh, when Jesus' resurrection, uh, or excuse me, the night of Jesus' resurrection He missed out on seeing the risen Lord, and so Jesus appeared again before his disciples a week later, and Thomas was there that time, and so Thomas himself could see the wounds and stop his own doubting and his own uh, unbelief. He also appeared to them along the seashore after some of the disciples decided to go on a fishing trip up to the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he also appeared before over 500 men, not counting women and children, upon a mountaintop in Galilee, according to Matthew's gospel and according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. And so some suggest that what we have here in verses 44, you know, all the way down to verse 49 are more of a summary statement of things Jesus did during those 40 days when he did meet with his disciples. And it's hard to say one way or the other exactly when these events happened, you know, if they occurred the same night of his resurrection or some other time during these 40 days that he was upon the earth after his resurrection. But the important thing, you guys, is not the timing of when these things happened, but the fact that these things, in fact, happened, right? So whether it was that same night, or if it was the next week, or another time during those 40 days, Jesus met with them, and he spoke to them about these things that we read here in verses 44 through 49. Jesus came to his disciples, and he dealt with yet another issue that they needed his assistance upon. He had already dealt with their hearts. Here, he deals with their minds by opening their understanding to the scriptures. Jesus reminded his disciples that he had told them previously about how all the words written about him had to be fulfilled. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms all foretold of what was going to happen to Christ and what must be done. And so Jesus opened their understanding that they may comprehend the scriptures, just like he did for the two men on the road to Emmaus that we looked at last week. Jesus went through the scriptures with his disciples and he showed how they all spoke of him. Jesus truly is the central figure of the entire Bible, from the very beginning of Jesus, or excuse me, of Genesis, when He created the world, to the very end of Revelation, where He creates a new heaven and a new earth. and everything in between, it all centers around and upon Jesus Christ and His work of redemption for humanity. Now, the fact that Jesus opened their understanding to comprehend the scriptures reminds me of a very important truth that we find in the scriptures. You guys, the scriptures, the Bible as we know it here, okay? It's primarily a spiritual book, okay? Yes, it contains historical information and historical facts, and it contains you know, uh, books of poetry and, and songs in it, okay? but it is not just a history book or an anthology of poems or a song book. Okay? It is a spiritual book, okay? and it takes spiritual understanding in order to properly comprehend the totality of the scriptures. You see, the natural man who reads the Bible as merely a historical book or as some sort of study material will not get everything out of it that God intends. For the, mat- for the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The Bible is a spiritual book, and it must be discerned through the Spirit before coming to faith in Christ okay whenever i was exposed to the bible it made little to no sense to me whatsoever and i don't know if any of you have ever can attest to that as well but as god's spirit started drawing me and i started reading the bible again all of a sudden it it started to make sense Right, it wasn't because I was somehow smarter and and more aware. Okay, it was all part of God's work in my life, drawing myself to Him through His Spirit. When I read it before, I was spiritually blind, but I was trying to discern the Bible in my own effort, and it made no sense to me. Of course, it didn't help that I just, you know opened it up right in the middle and started to read it and be like, this makes no sense. Who does that with any other book, right? Who just opens it up to the middle and reads a few lines and goes, yeah, this makes no sense at all. Of course it doesn't make sense, okay, because you're reading it. But we do that with the Bible, right? A lot of people do that. This thing makes no sense at all. And we shove it off, thinking it doesn't apply to us. Paul talks about this dynamic in the book of 2 Corinthians, There he writes how our minds are blinded, how there's a veil that remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is only taken away through faith in Christ. He writes, even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. When we turn to the Lord, He gives to us His Spirit, and through His Spirit, we're given understanding to read the Bible and have it make sense to us. You guys, without God's help, we will never be able to comprehend the entirety of His Word, okay? And so we need Him to open our minds that we might understand and spiritually discern what God's Word is saying to us, Let's continue in our text. Take a look at verses 46 through 48. I lost my place opening up to the middle of the Bible, wherever. Verse 46 says Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. So, after Jesus had worked upon their hearts and their minds, he then called his disciples as witnesses. In verses 46 through 48, Jesus calls his, witness, his disciples as witnesses of four things. Okay? We can note them together. First of all, he calls them as witnesses to his suffering. Jesus suffered and died upon the cross of Calvary. He was beaten, bruised, persecuted, rejected by his own people. His rejection and suffering was foretold in the scriptures. It was a necessary element of his coming. It was part of God's plan from the beginning. Consider Psalm 22, which speaks of his suffering. It opens up, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? It was this psalm that Jesus began to cry out while there upon the cross, when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the people would know, he's quoting Psalm 22. And if they would continue to read down and if they knew Psalm 22, they would have got to the part where he says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You guys, this is an Old Testament description of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. As we read it, we kind of might think, oh, that's a New Testament thing, because that's basically telling us what happened at the cross. But you guys, the book of Psalms was written about a thousand years before Christ, okay? When King David ruled, King David penned Psalm 22, and you guys, crucifixion wasn't even created until about four to 300 B.C. by the Persians. Okay? And yet God's word prophetically spoke of Jesus being pierced in his hands and feet and prophetically spoke of the details that would accompany his crucifixion. You see, and it was all foretold. The suffering of the Christ and the disciples were called to be witnesses of his suffering. But, they were also called to be witnesses to his resurrection. That's the second thing they had to witness. It was necessary that he suffer, but it was also necessary that he rise from the dead. The third day. Third day. Excuse me. Again, the scriptures foretold this. Psalm 16 reads, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Peter plainly tells us that David, who wrote Psalm 16, that David prophetically wrote these things concerning Jesus and his resurrection in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching to the multitudes that were gathered there in Jerusalem, he quoted this very psalm and said, this is speaking about Jesus Christ and his resurrection. That was foretold. The third thing Jesus called them as witnesses of was the need for repentance. The disciples would need to go out and witness and testify to others of their need to repent. A change of mind that leads to a change in action. You see, repentance is a necessary element of the message that, message that Jesus gave to his disciples. But listen, today, people don't like to talk about the need for repentance. Okay? They just want to emphasize God's love and his grace and his kindness, and they neglect to tell people about the need for repentance from sin. Because to tell people they need to repent is to suggest that they're doing something wrong, and well, that's offensive. We don't want to offend anybody. And so we don't talk about repentance, and we don't talk about sin, but it's a needed element of the gospel. You must repent. You must see sin as God sees it and turn from it. You know, it's interesting, the word repentance, uh, it's spoken of in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's preached in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Hebrew, which is the Old Testament, the word for repentance speaks of a change in action interestingly. While in the Greek, it speaks of a change in mind. Uh, and, but together, we understand that uh, true biblical repentance involves both. You see, it's a change of attitude and thought concerning sin that results in a change of action regarding sin. We know and understand sin as something God has called us out of, and we churn from it. That's what repentance is. The fourth and final thing Jesus called his disciples as witnesses of was the remission of sins or the forgiveness of sins, your Bible may read. Jesus wanted his disciples to preach about the forgiveness of sins, that it was made available through faith in Jesus' completed work upon the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And so when we put it all together, we see that they were called to go and tell people about Jesus dying on the cross for their sins, how he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death, And how he calls us all to repentance, and he offers the forgiveness of sin to all who would do so. And they were to proclaim this to all people, to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem and then making their way out from there. You guys, what we have before us here in these verses in Luke is basically Luke's account of Jesus' great commission. Right? When we talk about the Great Commission, we usually think Matthew 28, you know, verse 19 and 20, that's the Great Commission, you know, but this is Luke's version of the Great Commission, okay? sending his disciples out to preach the gospel, okay? to preach the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, to preach the uh, repentance and the remission of sins for all who would put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 49. We'll see another important element of preparation Jesus had for his disciples. It says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Here Jesus gives the promise of the Father. Okay, if you know uh, what this is, this is speaking of God's Holy Spirit to the disciples. John's gospel describes for us the disciples receiving the Holy Spirit at this time as they were commissioned to go out and preach the gospel message of Jesus' death and resurrection, the repentance and remission of sin. It reads, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, when Luke records Jesus is saying, behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. Okay, that word sin, it's a present, indicative, active verse. It's not like a future thing. He's saying, I'm giving it to you now, okay? And I believe it was at this time that the disciples received the Holy Spirit inside of them. That the Holy Spirit came and took residence within them, sealing them in their salvation. But Jesus told them of something that was still to come regarding the Holy Spirit. He told them to tarry in the city of Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. This, of course, is referring to the events that took place on the day of Pentecost, which was 10 days after his ascension, when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and empowered them to be witnesses as described in Acts chapter 2. The disciples, they spoke in tongues, and people from all around heard them speaking to them in their own languages, and some 3,000 responded to the message that the disciples proclaimed that day. Jesus called his disciples to be witnesses, but he did not call them to witness in their own power and strength. He promised to empower them through his Holy Spirit. And this is a very important thing for us to remember when it comes to witnessing and sharing with others. The power to bring people to the Lord is a power that only comes through God's Holy Spirit. If the Spirit of God does not draw a man, he will not hear the message. He will not respond to the message in a way that will result in salvation. He may respond, but it probably is not going to be in a way that you're going to like, okay? You see, it is the responsibility of God's Holy Spirit to lead people to salvation, to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come, according to John chapter 16, verse 8. It wasn't the job of the disciples to save people. God didn't call His disciples to save people. He called them to be witnesses. And in like manner, God hasn't called us to save people, okay? It is our job to be faithful witnesses, empowered by His Holy Spirit. But the work of salvation is a work only God can do through His Holy Spirit. It is something we must trust that He will work out in His own sovereign will and in His own plans. And so whether people believe and respond to our witness of Christ isn't really something we have power and control over. Our focus doesn't need to be upon whether someone responded, but whether or not we are being faithful witnesses of the Lord. You know, you might, be, you might have shared with people many times, and you think, you know what, I've told a bunch of people about the Lord, and none of them got saved. You know, it's just not working. I might as well just keep my mouth shut. Okay? That's not what God's called you to. God has called you to be a faithful witness and to let Him deal with the results. Okay? Whether they agree with you, whether they disagree with you, whether they get saved or not, that's not on you. That's a work of God's Holy Spirit. We are called to be faithful witnesses and to trust God with the rest. Let's continue our text. Read what happened next, verses 50 and 51. It says, And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. Now it came to pass, while he blessed them, that he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. The description here in verses 50 and 51 is that of the ascension of Christ, his departing from his disciples and entering into the presence of his Father in heaven. I'd like to note just a few different things from these verses, beginning with Jesus' blessing of his disciples. As Jesus led his disciples out upon the Mount of Olives as far as the small village of Bethany which was located on the side of the Mount of Olives he then lifted his hands and he blessed them. And you guys, I love the picture this creates in my own mind as I imagine the scene unfolding. For as he lifted his hands to bless them, the disciples would once again see the marks left behind by the nails, and they would be reminded again of his great love for them, and reminded of the price he paid for them, and how those nail-pierced hands resulted in their salvation. You know, the blessing that Jesus said, it's not recorded for us in Scripture. But whatever it was, I'm sure what He said to them blessed them just as much as what He showed to them in the lifting of His hands before them. And while He blessed them with His hands lifted up to heaven, Jesus parted from them and was lifted up into heaven. Acts chapter 1 gives us even more details regarding Jesus' ascension. There, Luke records how the disciples were joined by two men in white apparel who no doubt were angels come To them, and they proclaimed to the disciples, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And so the ascension was a beautiful and impactful sight, no doubt. But I think the message that came with the ascension was equally important, okay, and impacting. For it in it there was a promise of Jesus' return. Jesus was leaving his disciples, but he wasn't going to be gone for good, forever. One day he would return. He would come back down just as he had gone up. And this promise of his return is something that kept the disciples motivated and focused upon their calling as witnesses. Jesus is coming back someday. I don't know when, okay? But I do know that today is one day closer than it was yesterday, And I do know that when he does return, I want to be found faithful. I want to be found being about his business. And so the ascension and the promise of his return, that it it still does the same for us as it did for the disciples that day. It motivates us and it gives us hope for the future, a future where Jesus Christ will come again and receive us unto himself. What a glorious and wonderful day that will be, something we can all look forward to with great anticipation. In verses 52 and 53, we have the response of the disciples as Luke concludes his gospel account. Read these verses with me and we'll wrap up our study together here. Verse 52 and 53, it says, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Amen. Here in these verses, we read of the response of the disciples. Jesus had met with his disciples to make his final preparations before leaving them. He appeared before them. Reminded them of the peace that he offered them. He dealt with the unbelief in their hearts. He opened their minds that they may comprehend the scripture. He called them as witnesses. He sent them out to preach the gospel under the power of his Holy Spirit. He led them out upon the Mount of Olives, raised his hands, and blessed them departing from them, yet motivating them by the fact that he would one day return for them. And in verses 52 and 53, we read of their response. And I want to highlight three things regarding their response. First of all, we see that they worshiped the Lord. As Jesus arose out of their sight and ascended to the Father, and they realized all that Christ had done for them, the natural and appropriate response was to worship Him. And so too, in our lives, when we realize all that Christ has done for us, How he went to the cross for us and he died in our place. How he has given to us his peace. How he has touched our hearts and our minds. How he has called us and equipped us to be witnesses for him. How he has blessed us in so many different ways. Our first and most important response is to bow before him and worship. To acknowledge all that he has done for us and to worship him with all of our might, soul, and strength. But that isn't all that they did, okay? Not only did they worship Jesus, but they also went forth in obedience to him, okay? They returned to Jerusalem with great joy, just as Jesus had instructed them to. You see, in verse 49, he told them to tarry in the city of Jerusalem to wait there, and that's exactly what they did. They went back to the city of Jerusalem and waited, being obedient to what God's word had told them. And then lastly, we see that they continued together in fellowship, praising and blessing God continually in the temple. You know, I see here in the response of the disciples a type of blueprint for us as we live out our lives as followers of Jesus Christ and what our responsibility is as the body of Christ, okay? First and foremost, we are called to worship the Lord, okay? We worship God not just through the songs that we sing, but through the giving of our lives to the Lord as an act of surrender and sacrifice. We are fully committed to Him, worshiping Him. Okay. Next, I see the need for us to be obedient to His Word. Okay. Just as the disciples are obedient to what Jesus told them, we too must be obedient to God's Word given to us. That means we need to spend time in His Word. We need to be reading it. We need to be studying it so that we may be obedient to it. And then lastly, I see the need for us to be gathered together in fellowship continually as one body, praising and blessing God together. We don't forsake the gathering together of the saints because we know and understand the importance of walking this life together. None of us are called to walk alone. He has given us the body of Christ that we may encourage one another and edify one another and serve and equip one another. And so, May we follow in the footsteps of these disciples. May we worship Jesus, be obedient to his word, and continually gather together in fellowship, praising and blessing our Lord as a church family. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. And the opportunity that we've had just to go through this entire book, Lord, what a blessing it has been. Your word is just so powerful, Lord. And it just reveals to us your will and your ways for our lives, Lord. And we just thank you for it. We thank you that you have not abandoned us and left us to try and figure this all out on our own. But Lord, you've given us your word that we might know you and we might know your will and your ways for our lives. And so, Lord, we thank you for it. Lord, we thank you for this portion that we've studied today, how you came, Lord Jesus, and you ministered to your disciples, preparing them for what you'd called them to. And in like manner, you've done this a similar work in our hearts and lives, Lord. You've come to us, and you've given to us your peace. And, and Lord, you've touched our hearts and our minds, and you've called us to be witnesses, just as you called your disciples to be witnesses. And so, Lord, I pray that we would go forth in... Uh, like manner of these disciples. Lord, that our response to you and your calling upon our lives would be to worship you. Lord, to be obedient to you. Lord, to honor you in our lives and what we say, what we do, even what we think. And Lord, that we would remember the wonderful gift of the church body that you've given to us. Lord, that we can gather together and encourage one another and just help one another through it all. Lord, We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for the gift of your salvation. We thank you for the gift of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.